0: All right, again, if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel once again as I pick up a reading now from chapter 10. You'll notice that I'm skipping some material in chapter 10. I'm going to begin at verse 17 this morning. I'm actually going to come back to that material next week, so we'll look at that. Uh, It's describing how Saul can realize and be assured that, in fact, this anointing is of the Lord, but we'll come back to that next week. Uh, In our last reading, what was revealed to us is God's selection of Saul to receive this kingship in Israel, but the anointing was private, so there was only Samuel and Saul who were there. And of course, a, a, a private anointing is one thing, but that's really, you can't really have a king of all the people with just something that is done privately and so what we're reading now is Samuel drawing all the people together for this public proclamation and recognition of God's selection and their selection of Samuel pardon me, of Saul as king in Israel. So beginning at verse 17, the word of God." Now Samuel called together the people of the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you, but today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Martrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? and they despised him and brought him no present but he held his peace long live the king lord we thank you for this passage of scripture today and we pray that to us you through it would reveal to us the beauty of king jesus that we would see him in all of his splendor jesus we thank you for your reign your gentle reign in our lives and we say come quickly lord jesus Amen. Two weeks ago it was uh, still cold outside and it was too cold outside to begin any outdoor projects that we like to do and start this time of year and so Lauren pulled out an indoor project for us to do. It was the project that some of you may have done yourselves whereby you look through boxes of old photos and you try and pull out the ones that are most precious to you and to save the ones uh, that are most precious to you, and you talk about the old memories. We needed to sort through them. And they were pictures that went as far back as my grandparents as children, which is to say the pictures went back more than 100 years old. Now, I say they went back that far, but there were older pictures in there but I just don't know who the people are in the older pictures. They look like, like those old west type photos, and I have no way to discern. That's probably my, my grandparents' parents or something like that, but I have no way to figure out who those people are. And doing that, if you've ever done that exercise, is wonderful. It's wonderful, and it's absolutely hilarious. Now, it is hilarious for any number of reasons, not the least of which, is when you look back on how you dressed and how you looked at various times in your life, and you see the hairstyles that you had, the glasses that you wore, and the clothes that were either chosen by you or chosen by others and put on you. And I I kid you not, I think I have pictures of myself that are the worst outfits in history. I won't show them to you unless you wanna show me yours that are worse than mine, and if you think that you've got one that is worse than mine, I'll be the judge of that and then show you mine if, in fact, uh, that is the case. And I'm not talking about costumes. I'm just talking about what my mother, God rest her soul, dressed me in and thought, I don't know, that it was great or something, that it, it was wonderful. But it was hilarious to do that, and it's also wonderful because you see people you love and you see people who loved you through the years... And you see the people and the scenes and the places that serve to shape you and kind of make you the person who you are today. Let me give you just one example. I I don't want to tire you with this, but just one example. There's a picture of my mother as a young girl on a pier on a river off the Chesapeake. Okay? Uh, uh, My mother on a pier off the Chesapeake. And if you look back, generation before that, her parents, there's also pictures of them on the Chesapeake. There was an envelope that Lauren came across in one of the things, and it was uh, Eric's second birthday, 1967, Eric's second birthday. And I said, listen, before you open that, I can tell you where every one of those pictures will be. Every one of those pictures will be on a shore off the Chesapeake. And sure enough, we open it up, and every single one of them is exactly that. And And I go, "Wow, okay, it's natural. Where do I get my love of being on the Chesapeake? Not everybody has that in the same way. I know where I get it. It's it's like built into who I am. I can look at the generations and go, okay, that makes sense. It's why I love this particular place. When we read these stories, the ones that we have read here today, these initial stories of kingship, it is a little bit like that process of looking back on old photographs. When kingship is all grown up, it looks like Jesus. It looks like Jesus in his humility, and the Bible gives us a few, if you will, future snapshots of what it will look like when he comes back in all of his glory, in all of his exaltation. We get the snapshot, of course, in the midst of his life at the transfiguration, and then we get the snapshots from the book of Revelation that are literally just that, pictures to allow us to imagine what the king will look like in all of his glory, but we have plenty of pictures of the king in his humility. But when you look at these stories, the stories that we've just read today, and you read through them, you can't help but admit and realize that they seem a bit odd, a bit sad, a bit unlikely, and you're kind of looking at them going, is that going to turn into this? Is, is, is this connected here along Uh, the way, and yet these things, these things of which we read today, are the prototypes. They help us to understand Jesus, and they help us to understand ourselves as well. And so today what we're going to look at is how these chapters reveal the providential leading of God towards kingship and then towards the anointed king himself. And then we'll ask the question, What does that mean for us? We who are citizens of the realm, what does this have to say to us as the people of God, the people of the king? So we're going to be looking at pictures today, and particularly the big picture. I'm not going to go into the details of this text. So let's start with this. Let's start with the providential care of God that is exhibited in the passages that are before us, that move us towards the monarchy. Last week, we struggled with trying to balance or trying to make sense of the tension that is found within the text. And that tension, just to say it one more time, is Israel's desire, request, demand to have a king is uncovered to be a sinful desire, a rejection. And yet God is pleased to take that and turn it into his purposes, because his purposes are that Israel would have a king. So here's the king, and he Israel's purposes coming towards that, that are evil. Here's God's purposes coming towards that, that are good, and are going to lead us to a kingship today. That that tension, and that tension moved into this passage today. What this passage shows us is that whatever is there in that initial request. God has now taken the initiative, and God is providentially moving everything together to bring us to the spot where this man will be anointed as king. Think about this. Think about the way, in chapter 9 in particular, that every step of this journey is outlined by God, is determined by God to bring everybody to this particular place. Or think about it this way. Saul begins this story searching for lost donkeys. Now that's not a glorious task. You know, go find the donkeys. Who knows? Probably, well, I shouldn't say probably. Maybe Saul left them out. You know, maybe he didn't close the gate. The donkeys are wandering off. Go take a servant. Go and just go look for donkeys. Well, that's the, the call that he has and he ends up being anointed as king of Israel before he gets back home with it. That's a little bit of an unexpected event that takes place on the way to find lost donkeys. It looks like an ordinary journey. journey. I'm sure they were, you know, they're, they're riding along, they're, they're going along, and they, they get to a particular town, maybe a village. Hey, have, have you guys seen the lost donkeys? Here's what they look like. Have you seen these donkeys riding around? And they keep wondering... And they get to the point, of course, where Saul's ready to give up. We're not going to find him. And dad's going to be worried about me more than he's going to be worried about these donkeys. But what we see is that this is clearly providential. Right when they are ready to give up, they happen to be in a town where, though Saul doesn't realize it, his servant, the lad who has come along with him, realizes, hey, we are near the place where a seer is. A man of God is there. And well, that may sound like a good idea, Saul says, but you know what? We don't have anything to pay, the seer. And the servant says, well, it just so happens I've got, we'll just call it a quarter. I've got a quarter. We'll give a quarter to this seer and we'll go in and see what he knows and whether or not he can help us to find the donkeys. And they arrive, I skip this section of it. But they arrive as the women come out to gather up the water, and what that section makes clear is it is just the right time. Samuel has just returned. They're getting ready for the feast in the evening for a sacrifice that will precede that. And if you go up right now, you'll be able to get there. You'll be able to get to your request. So your timing is absolutely perfect. And, of course, the story has kept covered up until the very kind of end of it that this is Samuel we're talking about. Samuel's not mentioned at all, he's just the seer, the man of God, the prophet who is out there, and then we go, oh right, okay, now it's Samuel, this piece is brought together as well, and the Lord had told him the day before that the man whom you see coming, he's the one who is going to be the king over my people, and of course, as it turns out, Samuel knows exactly where the donkeys are. They go to the feast that evening, and it is exactly within the text in a section of it that I did not read in chapter 10. It is the hour that has been appointed. It is the appointed time by God that all of these things should come together. Not a hair can fall from your head without the will of your heavenly father. It cannot do so, and not a step can be taken by Samuel or Saul apart from that same will. God is providentially leading even in this sinful request, because that's what God does. That's how God glorifies himself. Now, that's, that's the picture in the moment, okay? That, that's our scene in the moment. What I want to do now, and this is what I'm going to do with each of these things, I'm going to give you an older picture, and I'm going to give you a newer picture. This is ours right here. Older picture first. Think back. Think back to another prince, one in Egypt, who ended up in Egypt because of the sinful will of his brothers. The sinful will of his brothers makes this man, Joseph, end up in Egypt as a prince whereby he is enabled to say to them, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You meant to do me harm. God meant to establish me as a prince in this kingdom for the sake of his people. That is this story. You meant it for evil. You wanted a king because you were afraid of enemies. God meant it for good. Joseph's life appeared to be out of control, and it was not. Now move forward to the king of kings. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified, killed by the hands of lawless men. They crucified Jesus... At the hour appointed.
1: At the exact
0: time, in the exact place, in the exact way, according to the perfect will of God the Father. It was an evil, wicked thing they did. You meant it for evil, and God meant it for good. They took the king and crucified him. And yet it was all under the providential care of God. God's providence is often mysterious to us. But whether in pits or prisons or whether you're talking about lost donkeys or on a cross, the sin of man cannot thwart the will of God. And that's what we're being told in this passage right here. It may look to you like this is a sinful request that everything is just happening randomly. It's not the case. I am working out my perfect will to bring the king into this position. So this providence of God then is leading us towards kingship. And before we, before we get to Saul himself and before we get to a king specifically, it's worth spending at least a moment or two talking about the idea of kingship or kingdom. I think I said this last week or the week before, but this time in Israel's history, this period that we're embarking on right here, is a time of incredible revelation, where God is going to uncover himself and his will for his people in wonderful ways that have not taken place before. An enormous amount of written, of prophetic revelation will be given to us during this period of time. But In particular, what God is doing is he's revealing for us the beauty, the glory, the holiness of his kingship by giving us a king to look at specifically and to see how he either is or is not like the beauty and the holiness of our Lord and his kingdoms. Two generations, several generations of God's people will be able to watch this unfold before their eyes. They'll be able to see the kingdom established. They'll be able to see the king anointed, the palace built, the house, the dwelling place for the name of God. They'll be able to watch these things. They'll be able to see people, the nations, stream up to Israel to hear the wisdom of the king of Israel. It will be a glorious time to be an Israelite and to see these things taking place. They are staged baby pictures. Everything looks great in these things with the the idea of the kingship, not with the specific kings themselves. At its best, Israel's kings will proclaim, as David himself does in Psalm 22, Israel's kings will say, kingship belongs to the Lord. I'm king, and I say that kingship belongs to the Lord. And Samuel, in this passage, in chapter 10, writes for them the rights and the duties of kingship. He says, this is what kingship is going to be all about. And this is providing Israel and the nations and all people a picture of who God is, how God rules as king how God rules in righteousness and in justice, how he defends his own people, and how he, as king, will defeat his enemies and the enemies of his people. Kingship and kingdom are gifts of God. They're gifts that are being given to the people of God, and kingship and kingdom are, are warnings as well. Warnings of the consequences of not following after God as king and not following after the kings whom God has established. But let's be clear about this. While we look at this passage and we say this is the establishment of kingship in Israel, this is absolutely not A new idea for the people of God. It's not new to humanity. There's an older picture of kingship that exists, older than this picture of kingship that is established for us here. Listen to these words. In fact, the the older picture that I want to show to us right now is a picture from the very beginning, and I'm going to show it to us in the words of Psalm 8. We were created under God in Psalm 8, and and God crowned man with glory and honor and gave him dominion. Now think about that picture, right? That's the language of Psalm 8. We We're created a little lower, crowned with glory and with honor and given dominion. And so if you ask the question, Who's the first king on the earth? It's not someone who's unknown to us. The first king on the earth is the first human on the earth. Adam is, in fact, the first king that God established on the earth. This is the language of kingship. We're created under God to enjoy his cosmic kingship and to reign on earth. For us... Kingship isn't a new idea. It's actually in our DNA. It's how we were created. We were created crowned. Created crowned with glory and honor. Kingship's a part of who we are as humanity. Not something that's new coming on the scene right here. Something that instead was from the very beginning. This is why Jesus can say, the king will say to those on his right, come to you who are blessed by my father and inherit the kingdom that has been prepared for you since before the foundation of the world. At the end of times, you're going to inherit, you're going to receive a kingdom. When did that idea get started? Before the foundation of the world, expressed in the creation of the very first people. Now we've got to be brief here and we'll just speed through how this works out. Adam, our first king, fell and all of the rest of us and all of the kings that would follow Saul and Saul himself fell as well. And that is why, that is why we do not see all things in subjection to us right now? That's from Psalm 8 as well. It's from the book of Hebrews also. If we're kings, one might say, why don't we see everything in subjection to us at the moment? And the biblical answer is, because our first parents subjected themselves to the reign and rule of another They rebelled against the high king who had created them, and as a result, they came under the reign and the dominion of Satan, of sin, and of death. He became their ruler. Why don't we see all things subjected to us right now? Because we subjected ourselves to another kingship in Israel is being established here But what it will become for the people when they see the failures is it will become a yearning. And that yearning will prepare us for the one who will come into the world. So we have an original creation of King Adam. We have King Saul established here. And then we have one who will come into the world. And what will he do as he begins his ministry? He will proclaim the kingdom of God. He will proclaim the reign of God into the world, restoring that which was lost in rebellion, bringing in the kingdom. And Paul will take this and say, under Adam's kingship, which was subjected to Satan and to sin and death, sin and death reigned. Sin and death reigned because of Adam's failure. Under the kingship of Jesus righteousness or grace will reign through righteousness through a king who always does what is right and true and just which brings us in this passage then to God's anointed king so if you're if you're still staying with me at all here what we've got is the providential work of God leading us towards kingship and now bringing us to an anointed king bringing us to Saul himself. The pieces are in place. The time has come. Judges has prepared, it, prepared us for it. The whole story of Boaz and Ruth, as unlikely as that has been, prepared us for it. Elkanah and Hannah and Hannah's prayer have prepared us for this particular place. Saul has found his way into Samuel's house. The time alone has been arranged, and all of that comes together And God, if you will, nods his head to Samuel and says, all right, this is the time. We've been waiting for this step. Everything's in place right now. Do it. Anoint a human king over my people, Israel. It's a quiet moment. It's just the two of them who are there, but it's a Pregnant moment in the history of the people of God. Saul is chosen of God, which Samuel knows, and it will be confirmed publicly through the use of the lots that we see in chapter 10. And as Samuel anoints Saul, we see an interesting choice of words given the circumstances. He anoints Saul to be prince over his people Israel. It actually doesn't say he anoints Saul to be king over his people Israel. Now, make no mistake, Saul would be a king and kingship is being established in Israel. But it seems that in the anointing in and of itself, Samuel is trying to say to Saul, listen, you are going to reign as king, but realize that you are a prince. Realize that you reign under the king of heaven and earth, and therefore I anoint you as prince or leader over my people Israel. Anointing is not something new, it's part of the law of Moses that prescribes and gives the recipe for the ingredients for anointing oil. And anointing oil was used to set apart people and objects. For service unto God from their normal usage to be holy things and to empower them for the task that was given to them to be used for particularly the worship of God. But now the Lord's anointed king is on the earth and that is something new and it is something different that has not existed before this very moment. Even the anointed. David appreciates, of course, the significance of anointing when he says, as we'll see in chapters to come, I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. God has established an anointed king in this place, and I won't raise up my hand against what God has established. This is the beginning of an anointed king, but it is not the end. Saul looks the part. He looks like the kind of guy that you would want to have as king, but as we will see as time goes by, he just doesn't measure up to his physical stature. In times to come, there will be another meeting that will take place. An odd-looking prophet will see a man come before him who doesn't look the part of a king, who doesn't have all of the physical qualities and a rich family like Saul had. Another one will come before an odd-looking prophet and the prophet will say, I'm actually not worthy to untie his sandals. I'm not worthy to do that, and yet and yet that prophet, John the Baptist, will baptize that man, will anoint the one who is before him with the Holy Spirit and with power. You can read about it on the front of your bulletin. Peter, in his amazement at Cornelius and his faith, as for the word that he sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he's Lord of all, You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good to all. Right after that, the disciples who will follow Jesus say to one another, we have found the Christ Christ. We we have found the Messiah. We have found the anointed one, a holy and humble king, and his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. We'll have more time as these stories go through to look more at this idea of the kingship and the kingdom. But what are we supposed to take away from this? How do we respond to this for us today? Well, first of all, When we read a story about this, the providential care of God, each step being taken by God, I hope that for each of us, that is an encouragement to trust in the word of God because of the clarity and the coherence that we find in the word of God. Each step that we take along the way is governed by the Lord. But within this text itself, there are two responses to the kingship of Saul. Two responses that are given in this text. We'll start with the negative one first. Here's the negative one. It's the last verse of the passages that I read. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him, and they brought him no present, but he held his peace. How do you respond to the Lord's anointed? Well, some always will look at the Lord's anointed and say, how can that man save us? How can a man on a cross save us? How can a man 2,000 years ago save us? How can a man looks like that, who has no apparent army, no apparent weapons, how can he save us? And they offer to Jesus no presents, no tribute, worthless fellows. Now this says he held his peace. The king won't always hold his peace at those who rebel against him. So one way to respond to this is to ignore it. To say, well, how can Jesus save? What does he know? But there's a second response that is given to us here. And it is all the people who shout, long live the king. That's that, Those are weird words for Americans. We, we just don't say them. We just don't think about them in that way. They kind of seem like... Uh, treacherous words, or they certainly would have been treacherous words a couple of hundred years back had we said, long live the king. Prior to that, they would have been words of fidelity to have said them. But there are those who respond to the anointed King Jesus and say to him, long live the king, and may we be among them. And within that group, there's one other group, Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. Within all of those who said, long live the king, there were a few whose hearts were touched by God and who said, all right, If the king's anointed exists, I am going to follow hard after the king. I will be amongst the king's mighty men of valor. Now, if you can accept this, you can hear this. This is exactly why the disciples started to follow Jesus after his baptism. Right at that moment. It's the same exact thing that is taking place here as was taking place then hearts that were touched of those who would follow Jesus. May the Lord touch your heart. May he touch your heart so that you become those of valor who will serve the anointed king. Samuel anointing Saul is an old picture. It's an old picture in the box, but we see in this old picture our DNA as citizens of the realm and service of our king. Brothers and sisters, we are going to receive and are receiving now an unshakable kingdom. It's being prepared right now by the king, an unshakable kingdom to be given to us. May we say and sing, our God reigns. May we pray, thy kingdom come. And may we be able to shout together, long live the King. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for giving us these pictures in your word, for showing us King Jesus in his humility and then in his glory to come. And we pray that you would help us as your people to show and to prove full allegiance to our King. And this we pray, Jesus, in your name, your exalted name. Amen.